This is Judith Lay welcoming you to Manx Radio and to the podcast of this week's edition of At Your Service. Manx Radio. This morning, you're going to love hearing a few memories from the postman who also preached the gospel and the priest who is also a poet, a biker, a singer-songwriter and a teacher but says the real purpose of his life is... To use my love of language and my facility for it to kindle my own and other people's imaginations for Christ. That was the voice of Malcolm Geit, and there'll be more, much more, from him a little later. And the postman who was also a preacher is the late Norman Baron of Kirkmichael. But first, let's have some music. In many churches today, there'll be special services for the Week of Prayer for Christian Unity. So our hymns and songs in today's programme are all on that theme. Here's Marlborough College Choir and In Christ There Is No East or West, In Him No South or North, but One Great Fellowship of Love Throughout the Whole Wide Earth. A hymn of unity, in Christ there is no East or West. Another occasional series of programmes that I love to make is called The Archive Room and, as the name suggests, it's a chance to listen again to local folk telling stories of their life and experiences on the island, usually in conversation with David Collister, who was brilliant at drawing out the very best stories from his guests. Norman Barron was born in 1909 and in a fascinating conversation with David, he talked of growing up in Kirkmichael and working as a postman. But there was also another aspect of Norman Barron's life that we haven't talked about in the archive room. In 1958, Norman became a fully accredited Methodist local preacher and gave around 40 years of voluntary service to the island's Methodist church. And here he is. In a conversation recorded in the year 2000, Norman Barron, then aged 91, tells David Collister all about it. Well, <laughs> it's funny how you get into these things, really. My father-in-law was a lay preacher. He did a, quite a bit of preaching. And as he got older, he, he says to me, come out here, will you come and, and read 
the hymns out for me and, and uh, read a lesson for me and so on. Well, this happened a few times and uh, I went with him to a little chapel at Balalaik at Michael there one afternoon and he, uh, he let me do the first part of the service and then he said, well, I'm going down now, you carry on. Carry on, he said. <laughs> Here I was, standing like a stop button. What am I going to do next? <laughs> yeah. So you had, no, you had no sermon or anything? For like? Nothing, nothing. Uh, fortunately, it was about the parable, the, the lost son, uh, the prodigal son, uh, rather. Yeah. So I, I spoke on that for a little bit. What I said, I don't know. What I, I suppose nobody would ever want to know again, perhaps. <laughs> but funnily, from that, you see... He reported it to the, the superintendent minister in Ramsey and they put me on note, you see. When you're on note, you go out with a local preacher, you yeah, see. Oh, yes. And then then when they, they're satisfied, they put you on trial. Mm. They eventually put me on trial. Well, I, I felt, I, felt my, I could do a bit of this, you know, to be all right. Mm. So I... Uh, I got on trial, and that meant I had to take exams, of course. Oh, yeah. There was three exams, the Old Testament, the New Testament, and worship. And uh, I got through the three all right, yes. Mm. Mm. Uh, well, satisfactory enough to put me on full plan. I got established then as yeah. a full, fully accredited preacher, as yes. they call them. Yes. So I went up preaching until two or three years ago. I don't do any now because... Did you get paid as a preacher then? Oh, no. No, no expenses? No or? expenses. No. There was a fund, that they said, in the circuit which you could claim, but I never did claim at all. No. I thought, well, I perhaps I can do this. Would you have seen it, attendances drop over the years? Yes, oh, yes, yes. Oh, the chapels that have disappeared since I started, as well, I don't know, could I, there's more than I could count on both yeah. hands in the northern yeah. circuit. Yes. And I, sometimes I would take two services, you see, afternoon and evening. Mm. Well, I had to walk or cycle in the early days because I didn't have a car then. Mm. And then eventually, Mr. Frank Crow, they used to plan it so that we could travel with somebody with a car yeah. eventually. So Mr. late Mr. Frank Crow was a, a captain of the parish, a member of the Keys at that time. Yeah. And he used to do quite a bit, so we travelled with him. Or we travelled with a Mr. Sam Corkle, who lived in Ballacraga Farm, oh, yeah. Michael. Yeah. And they, would, they took their cars and then they would give us a lift and mm. drop us off at a chapel, you see, and then pick us up on the way mm. back, you see. I was very keen on picking hymns suitable to the service, or mm. sermon rather. Yeah. I was very keen on that. When you did your sermons, did you write them beforehand? I did, yes. Yeah. Some people don't, uh, but I found I couldn't cope with it unless I write. I wrote them all out, yeah. and then, of course, I, I referred to them, yeah, keep so referring so to them all. worked the around time. the words. That's you, right, yeah, yes, yeah. yes. How long did a sermon have to be? Was there a set time? Well... Uh, I always thought to myself 20 to 25 minutes, but I think that was getting a bit long for some of them, so I started to cut them down a bit. <laughs> Quarter of an hour uh, or so, I think I found was uh, acceptable to most places. Did you go back to certain subjects more frequently? No, I, I'd be guided by 
readings for each Sunday in the Methodist, and and I I tried to take a sermons from those. You oh, see, yes. yes. Yeah. But uh, I've seen me till about two o'clock in the morning trying to fight and get the wind up up here. I wouldn't have a sermon for uh, something. I was going to say because it would actually take quite a long time to write. Well, it? you've got to, you've got to concentrate on it, and I yeah. can't do that now, of course. I transferred to the Douglas circuit when I moved to the Peel. Mm. Peel and Douglas joined eventually oh, yeah. into one circuit. No, there's just the three Castle Town, the South Circuit, and then Peel, Douglas, and Ramsey. Right. So I transferred from Ramsey uh, to Peel or Douglas Circuit. Mm. Uh, so I'm on that circuit now, actually, although I don't take any services now. Oh, no. I started, I was fully accredited in 1958. Yes, yeah. But I'd been taking services for a few years before that. Yeah. But I had to do these exams. <laughs> I think it's gone too too much theology now. Uh, in those days, there was one or two old men, and they were great men too. Willie Tia Cook, Michael, he was a great preacher. Just a layman, just an ordinary layman, but he was a wonderful preacher. And I used to go with him quite a lot, really. We are one in the Spirit. We are one in the Lord. We are one in the Spirit. One in the Spirit, another hymn of Christian unity and witness. And when we were singing that in church and in school back in the 1960s, I never imagined that 60 years later I'd be playing it on a radio programme. It was written by a Catholic priest, Father Peter Schultz, for a Christian unity service in his church on the south side of Chicago, so it's particularly appropriate that we should include it today as we celebrate this week of prayer for Christian unity. This recording is by the group called For King and Country, and it featured in a Christian miniseries on American television called A.D., the Bible continues. And Norman Barron was talking to David Collister about his years as a Methodist local preacher. And I'm hoping that there'll be another series of the Archive Room starting in the middle of February. I'm really looking forward to starting work on that. It's going to sound to you as if my guest today couldn't possibly have packed so many achievements and interests into just one life. But he has, and still is. 
Born in Nigeria, the son of a Methodist local preacher who was also an academic, Reverend Dr. Malcolm Guite is a poet, a singer-songwriter, an Anglican priest, an author and an academic. His research interests include religion and the arts and he was chaplain at Girton College, Cambridge for nearly 20 years. He also has a passion for rock and roll and motorbikes, which is probably why he was very happy to make his first visit to the island towards the end of last year. Sadly, it was a very brief visit, but first impressions were good. Oh, it's thrilling to be here. It's very beautiful, isn't it? I, I mean, I arrived in the dark, but now I've had a chance to look around. And today I was wandering around Peel, and that's really beautiful fishing port. Lots of fishing boats all gathered together, and uh, I love the atmosphere of it. So, and the castle, of course, and the, the distant views of Ireland, you know, the other lands in the distance over the sea. It was beautiful. That's quite a compliment because you're very well travelled yourself. I, <laughs> yeah. I know that. Let's go back to early days, if I may. You were born in, in Nigeria, your father, a Methodist minister, yeah. and you were given a tribal name at the time of yes, your birth. Yes, that's right. I was given a Yoruba name, a traditional Yoruba name, my, my first name. And I have to get this right because it's on my passport. It has to be on my tickets as well. And it's Ayo Deji. Ayo means joy. Deji means again or a second, second joy. It's quite a traditional name for a second child, which I am. But I was given it partly because there were complications around my birth. And it was a Yoruba nurse who noticed there was a problem and rushed out and got the consultant who was about to leave the compound and brought him back. And the intervention was made and I was born prematurely and looked after. And I think my mother and I probably both owe our lives to this, this Yoruba nurse. So my mother said, well, what should we call the baby? And she said, Ayodeji. So I was given Ayodeji as my first name. And when we were in Nigeria, Ayo was the shortening of it, which just means joy. But I was given Malcolm as a middle name, so I didn't forget my Scots heritage, because I'm half Scots. So I have this African childhood in Nigeria first, and uh, then Zimbabwe, Rhodesia as it was then, really for the first nine or ten years of my life. But of course, we came back to England, you know, on leave each year. And for me, it was strange that there was this other place that was always called home, and it didn't really become home to me until I... I was a schoolboy in a school in North London, and then eventually I came up to Cambridge. And I mean, I've been very fortunate to live in or near Cambridge almost ever since I, I came up as a student in the late 70s. Let's talk about your faith journey. My father was, he wasn't a full-time, he was a Methodist local preacher. So his actual profession, he was a professor of classics. He was a specialist in, in well, both Greek and Latin, and if you like, you know, just pre-Christian pagan poetry. Uh, but he, he was a strong Christian and a Methodist. And my mother was, a, was of sort of Presbyterian stock. And I did grow up with faith, and it was that sense. You know, my father always said there was no difference between the sacred and the secular, that God was everywhere. And if you sang a hymn to the glory of God, you should also play cricket to the glory of God. And you know, So I grew up with a sense of God being everywhere, and it's quite nurturing and nourishing. Obviously, there's bound to come a time when you, when you start to question all of that, naturally, in the teenage years. That coincided, as it happened with me, with this rather big decision they took to send me to a boarding school in England because they were afraid I was losing my British identity. At that time, they were living in Canada, you know. So I, I, I kind of lost my faith. I began to think you know, there wasn't anything in it and that it was just one of those childish things you would leave behind, like believing in Father Christmas or whatever. So I went, I went through that. And it was to do with teenage traumas as well and difficulties at school. It was a mix of things. And then I was about 16 or 17. Poetry began to dawn on me as, as something astonishing and mysterious and beautiful. And particularly, I was in Keats's house once and reading The Ode to a Nightingale. And 
I was actually, I was really gloomy, moody teenager at that point, and I was reading it rather resentfully. I didn't want to be there, you know, my aunt had taken me there, reading it on the wall. But of course, it's got this very slightly grumpy opening, you know, my heart aches and a drowsy numbness pains my sense, as though of hemlock I had drunk or emptied some dull opiate to the drains one minute past, and leafy words had sunk, so like, dull drains, you know, I was thinking, you got me there. And uh, I was reading this, and then of course, as you know, the poem suddenly takes flight into the most astonishing beauty, you know, right after the word sunk, which you think like could be the end of gloomy adolescent poem. It goes, "'Tis not through envy of thy happy lot, but being too happy in thine happiness, that thou, light-winged dryad of the trees, in some melodious plot of beech and green, and shadows numberless, singest of summer in a full-throated ease." And I would like, what was that? that? It's just astonishing. So I read this poem many, many times. It has that strange, beautiful image towards the end. It's almost like right at the back of the poem, he sees these magic casements opening on perilous seas in fairy lands forlorn. So right at the heart of this poem, there was a kind of homesickness and then a sense of doors opening onto something mysterious. And I had, I think it would be fair to say, I'd look back now, it was a spiritual experience or an epiphany. When I walked into Keats's house, I was still saying this is all completely meaningless. It's just brain chemistry being mistaken for significance, you know. When I walked out, I knew something had happened that was more than an enzyme. There was a, there was a transcendent meaning. Now, I didn't instantly become a Christian, but it made me realise that something astonishing and glorious is shimmering through this world, and every so often you see it. And I realised poetry is what opens that out. And so, you know, that's where I first wanted to be a poet. And eventually I came up to Cambridge and had the joy of three years reading English at Cambridge, what's not to like. And I deepened my love of literature and poetry. And I decided to particularly look um, medieval and Renaissance literature. In order to do that, you really had to read a bit of theology, know your Bible better. So I really began to get deeply acquainted. I read the King James Version and I read the Book of Common Prayer as background, in inverted commas, to English literature, because you can't really understand literature unless you know these great source texts. And of course, I was deeply moved and they wouldn't stay in the background. And then I began to read theology and I read Augustine's Confessions, you know, and that massively opened up my mind because I had always assumed that back then they were a bit dim and superstitious and now we've been able to make digital watches where we're very sophisticated and understand everything but you read augustine and you, you know, the confessions and you realize you're in the presence of a mind that's bigger than yours you know it's a really capacious mind and augustine had thought through all kinds of things that i'd never even thought of at all and i could never more say either that christianity is for dummies or indulge in you know what c.s lewis called chronological snobbery where you think that just because we're up to date, we're wise. So I began to be much more intellectually open to taking Christianity seriously. And then, of course, who should, who should come to my elbow, as it were, but the same C.S. Lewis that I'd loved the Narnia stories of, which I reread now with more open eyes, and I began to realise again that you could be a Christian in the modern world without, as it were, leaving your brains at the church door, you know. And Augustine says somewhere, I believe in order to understand. I was always afraid if I became a Christian again, that would be it. I'd stop thinking. 
it's a, a completely new way of seeing the whole world. It's a beginning of thought. It's an intellectual and imaginative adventure to, just to begin to unfold what it means to say that there's a God who loved you enough to become one of you. That's quite a big thing to get your mind around. So uh, towards the end of my, my time at Cambridge, through a series of things, I became a Christian again and, and I, uh, I was confirmed university confirmation service in my final year in 1980. So here we have Cambridge student Malcolm Guite finding his Christian faith for himself. How he became a priest and realised that being a poet was part of his ministry rather than a distraction from it is something we'll hear about in the second part of this interview that I'll bring to you in a few weeks' time. But today, let's find out more about Malcolm Guite, the poet, who says that After much soul-searching, he realised that the real purpose of his life is... To use my love of language and my facility for it to kindle my own and other people's imaginations for Christ. Some time ago, I wrote a book called Faith, Hope and Poetry, in which I talk about poets who were not with the conscious, you know, philosophical part of their minds, Christians at all, but who nevertheless, as poets kept on bearing witness to something. I mean, the classic example of that would be Thomas Hardy, who's a bit bleak as a novelist. But, you know, Hardy, in his later in his life, began to write poetry. And uh, there's an astonishing poem. You you can clearly see he wanted to write an uber-bleak poem, right? He's writing it on the very last day of the 19th century, on the last day of January before the 20th century is going to dawn. And he doesn't, you know, he doesn't think the outlook is good, you know. I leant upon a coppice gate when frost was spectred grey. The winter's dregs made desolate the weakening eye of day. The tangled bind stems scored the sky like strings of broken lyres. And all mankind that haunted nigh had sought their household fires. It's not looking good. And then there's a whole other verse which is full of funereal imagery, you know, about the century's corpses lying there. You've got two verses of this, and um, suddenly he just bears witness. He hears this thrush singing. He says, All at once there rose among the bleak twigs overhead a full-hearted evensong of joy illimited, an aged thrush... Gaunt and frail, in blast beruffled bloom, had chosen thus to fling his soul upon the gathering gloom. So little cause for carolings of such ecstatic sound was written on terrestrial things afar or nigh around, that I could think there trembled through his happy midnight air some blessed hope whereof he knew and I was unaware. That's how Hardy ends the poem. And you notice he doesn't say, I did think. He says, I I could think. He just says, maybe something is possible. Maybe something glimmers through. And that's where I think the poet in Hardy knew more than the prose writer. And his heart knew more than his head. As a poet yourself, do you feel that when you're writing something, it develops almost outside yourself? Totally. Obviously, you have to have some idea of what you might be doing when you start a poem. But if I've got an idea of what I'm going to write when I write a poem. The poem turns out to be exactly and only that. It's not a poem, it's a note to self. The poem has to quicken or move or do something or take an unexpected turn 
and teach me something. I sometimes say the only thing that gives me the temerity to call myself a poet is, is the conviction that all the words I use are older and wiser than I am. Occasionally I write a poem where I don't at the moment see the fullness of what I've said at all until a reader points it out. I once had this experience. I, I, I wrote a, a quite short little poem. It was so personal and particular. It was to a friend. It was called Holding and Letting Go. And it was just a very particular instance where I'd been intending to accompany my father to the funeral of one of his friends. My father was quite elderly. And at the last minute, I was called up to an emergency in college and I couldn't go. But I had another friend with me. And my friend said to me, I'll go with your dad. And as I rode off to college, I glanced around and I, I just saw as they were turning the corner that my friend reached out to hold my father's hand. So I dealt with the emergency at college and we came back and I sat down and wrote this little note to my friend in verse. We have a call to live, and oh, a common call to die. I watched you and my father go to bid a friend goodbye. I watched you hold my father's hand. How could it not be so? The gentleness of holding on helps in the letting go. For when we feel our frailty, how can we not respond and reach to hold another's hand and feel the common bond? For then we touch the heights above and every depth below, we touch the very quick of love, holding and letting go. It is a hospice poem, but I needed a reader to show me that. The poem knew more than I did. You say it's your most requested poem, and I would stake my life on the fact that that speaks to every reader in a different way. Yeah, I'm sure it does. I, and some people want to use it at funerals, and some of them want to read it in hospices. Some people just want it as a kind of comfort at different stages in life. So I feel publishing your poetry is a bit like letting your kids go off to college, you know. They go off and make completely new friends and sort of come back wearing different clothes. And the great thing about that is when your children develop like that, you get to see more of them. Their new friends bring out sides of them that you couldn't have brought out, but which you can enjoy. And I think poems are like that. I think they're kind of living things. And I like it when my poems make friends who then come and tell me something they found in the poem that I didn't see. My guest today was priest and poet Reverend Dr Malcolm Geit. Malcolm is the author of a number of books, but the one where you'll find that lovely little poem, Holding and Letting Go, is called The Singing Bowl, a collection of beautiful, simple, thought-provoking poems that perfectly capture all the emotions and experiences that are common to us all. Malcolm's surname is quite unusual. Geit is spelled G-U-I-T-E. G-U-I-T-E, and there'll be more stories, thoughts and poems from Malcolm on this programme in a few weeks' time. 
And now it's time for a look at our notice board and we start with some important news of a cancelled service. The Mariners' service, which was to be held this evening in Colby Methodist Church, has been cancelled because of the bad weather forecast. No Mariners' service in Colby tonight and if you could help by spreading the word to anyone you know who's a Mariners' regular and might have been heading to Colby tonight, that would be much appreciated. Staying with news for today and Port Erin Gospel Church next to the Catholic Church on Station Road in Port Erin invite you to join them for two services today. The first is later this morning at half past 11 entitled Feast or Famine? God's Judgment Upon the Land. The evening gospel service will be tonight at six o'clock and will include the special testimony of Mrs. Angie Olford from Ohio in the United States. Angie will share her amazing story of a journey from a strict religious Anabaptist upbringing to a glorious meeting with the Lord Jesus Christ. Tonight's preacher is Mr. Paul Olford from Northern Ireland. That's all at Port Erin Gospel Church today. Also today, the Cathedral Choir, whilst exiled from the building in Peel due to work on the cathedral floor, are taking Evensong on safari, and Reverend Ruth Walker from the Abbey Church in Balasala says, We're very happy to be hosting this quiet, contemplative service at the Abbey Church here in Balasala this afternoon at half past three with refreshments afterwards in the church hall. There's plenty of easy parking nearby and this is your chance to experience a different style of calming worship and at the same time encourage the young choristers in their faith and in their music studies. Onken Methodist Church are celebrating their church anniversary next weekend and this Friday, the 26th, they're having an anniversary concert with the choir Musicale, plus a raffle and light refreshments. The Musicale concert is in Onken Methodist Church this Friday evening at 8 o'clock and admission is free. Selby Methodist Church invites you to their coffee morning in Ramsey Town Hall. It's next Saturday, January the 27th, opening at 10am. And stalls include homemade cakes and jams. There'll be a raffle and an instant prize draw and much more. And finally, there's something new starting next Saturday afternoon and you're invited to come along and find out more. It's the launch of Manx Methodist Heritage, a new group and a new name. Come and find out more at Union Mills Methodist Church next Saturday afternoon at half past two. There'll be refreshments and your ideas and suggestions for the success of this new group will be warmly welcomed. And I'm afraid that's all that we've got time for now. But I'll be back later in our virtual lounge tonight from nine o'clock with our usual mix of easy listening music, your requests and your dedications. So until whenever we meet again, this is Judith saying thank you for listening. And I wish you and those you love a blessed and peaceful week and a very good morning. Mm -hmm.